Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. We're honored to have our guest today, Eric Almeida from Bernardston, Massachusetts, where, like I said, it must be pretty cold right now. It totally is. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, an emotional healer who is focused on helping others, has a passion and care for guiding his clients towards embracing their true selves. Founder and CEO of Eric EFT, an organization dedicated towards self-fulfillment, Eric has the unique ability to accompany his clients through the process of releasing the emotional weight from their past and being able to embrace their strength, passion, and dignity. He earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in psychology, the intention of becoming a clinician. After graduating, he got a position at a residential facility for emotionally distressed children. As fulfilling as the work was, he was not ready to take on the weight what came that came with such a position. We're honored that Eric has shared some of his time with us today. Eric, how's it going today? It's going great. How are you doing, Tim? Can't complain. It's a little chilly for California, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, like was, yeah, I, I would love for the for it to be in the forties instead of in the single digits right now, for sure. <laughs> that makes me cold. All right. Well, you got a great story to tell. It sounds like you have excelled at a very high level in your field, uh, but also went through one of life's major challenges with your emotional well-being while doing so. And it sounds like it, it was a very anxious experience that can be very disrupting to someone. Can you take some time and tell us a little bit about your story and got and how you got here today and like I said, please take your time. Absolutely. So, like you mentioned in the intro, after college, I, you know, I worked in the residential program for children. And at that time, when you know, I was 21, 22, I wasn't in a mental state to be able to handle that kind of level of mental health challenges that would have been the clients I was working with at that time. But I still wanted to work with people. And so I kind of stayed in the customer service realm for many, many years after that point, you know, jumping into hospitality and real estate. I worked at a tea factory for a while and um, 
And then the more recent one was working in subsidized housing. I was the assistant property manager and, you know, it was very technical work, a lot of government paperwork. And I had to really maintain the professional distance between myself and the residents. And for me, that kind of made my situation worse. I had been for many, many years suppressing my emotions. And in a weird way, it made me really good in customer service because I can kind of hold back my reaction. And when someone would be upset about, you know, anything, this or that, a TV remote control has dead batteries, they'd yell at me and I'd be like, not a problem, sir. Like it made that kind of, that facade very easy to maintain. But for my own mental health, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't beneficial. And so when I was working in subsidized housing, I was doing my normal paperwork with one of my residents, a normal recertification. And I just, I felt like something was just profoundly wrong. Like just, I just didn't feel right. And I thought I was getting sick. So I left that meeting. I went over to my boss's office and I'm like, hey, can you, can you cover this? I'm like, I don't feel good. And she was like, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah. I wander off into the maintenance office and sit down and whatever was going on got immensely worse very quickly. Mm. I started to hyperventilate. Uh, my hands started to go numb. My feet started to go numb. I broke out into a cold sweat. And I honestly thought that I was having a heart attack. And I just started freaking out. And so I try to call 911. It doesn't work. We have those voice over, we had those voice over IP phones. So you had to dial nine to call out. So 911 wouldn't work. The feature wasn't turned on. So I'm like, shit, I need my phone. My phone was in the office with my boss and the residents. So I try to like compose myself, walk into the office, grab my cell phone. And as I'm walking out, I whisper into my boss's ear, like, I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm calling an ambulance. And she was cool as a cucumber and was like, okay, do what you have to do. And I go back into the maintenance office. I call 911. I tell them what I'm experiencing and they're like, okay, we'll send an ambulance right away. Immediately afterwards, I call my husband. It goes to voicemail and I leave him a message basically saying goodbye. Cause I, by that point I was completely melting down and just freaking out and a message he did, he did not appreciate getting, but, um, <laughs> and so I hang up, from that message and by that point my vision was starting to close in kind of like when you're about to faint and so I, I kind of just I put my head on the desk and I'm just snot and drool and tears are just oozing out of my face and then I kind of lose time and then the next thing I remember is the two paramedics coming into the office and they're like you know are you Eric what's going on what's happening I you know explain to them my symptoms they put the blood oxygen clip on my finger they put the blood pressure cuff on my arm and you know they get those that information and then they're like okay we have good news and we have bad news the good news is you're not having a heart attack the bad news is you're having a panic attack and so they stayed with me for about half an hour or so you know helping me calm down helping me with breathing techniques my husband ends up calling me back completely freaked out being like what's going on where, where are you are you okay and I tell him, you know, it's a panic attack. It's not a heart attack. Can you come and pick me up from work? Um, the paramedics offered to take me to the hospital. And I said to them, I, I said to them, I'm feeling okay. I don't think I need to go to the hospital. And so my husband takes me home and I take a day off. I take the next day off from work to kind of recover. 
And I try to go back to work the, the day after that, just trying to treating the panic attack like it was a weird fluke, like not really getting why it happened. I get to work that morning and all of a sudden those feelings just start coming right back. And I'm like, nope, 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 I, I can't be here. And I just, I, I like literally like run out of the office and go back home. I actually passed my boss before she was driving in as I was leaving. Mm. And so I'm like, this isn't good. And the day after that, I try again. And I get about halfway down on the highway and the same feelings start coming right back. And I, mm. I end up turning around on the highway and just going back home. And I was just like, this is really bad. And it ended up getting worse. I ended up becoming agoraphobic. I was scared to leave my house. I was scared to drive. I couldn't go to the grocery store. I ended up confining myself to one room in the house, kind of like hiding under the covers, having moments of just being super depressed or just crying and just the whole, the panic attack experience made me realize that I was really white knuckling it for a really, really long time. And the panic attack kind of shattered that ability to kind of like force myself through what I was ever was going on. So luckily I had a colleague, I had a colleague of mine who was a therapist. So I call her up and I'm like, Sarah, I'm like, can you help me? And can we do it over the phone? Cause I don't feel comfortable to drive. And she was like, sure, it's not a problem. We can do it. Over, we can talk over the phone. I have, and she's like, I, she made time for me in her, in her schedule. Thank God. And so, you know, she is a conventional therapist that had incorporated the emotional freedom technique, also known as EFT or tapping into her practice. And we did that work together. And after doing that work for about a month or so, the agoraphobia went away. You know, I realized that I needed to just leave the job altogether. I had taken a medical leave from the job and then I ended up just deciding to quit altogether being like, there's no, you know, there's that job just doesn't click with me. Like it's just gonna, it's gonna be the, bring out the worst in me just because of how much stressful it was and how much it forced me to be really disconnected from myself. And so I continued to do a lot of self work with her. And so this happened the summer of 2018. And by the end of that year, 2018 into 2019, I ended up getting the courage to start my own business. I ended up opening up an antique store actually at that time. It was one of my, it was my, when I retire kind of jobs and I was like, screw it, why not do it now? The idea of going back into mental health, I still wasn't ready for that. It popped into my mind, but it still scared me a little too much. But I kept doing the work with Sarah with the EFT while having the antique business. And, you know, regrettably, I closed the, closed the antique store back in March of 2020. I actually got out right before the lockdown started here in Massachusetts. It, the, comp, the, the antique store just financially wasn't viable. So even if COVID never happened, I still would have had to have closed it. But I was very grateful for the experience and the connections that I made and just the fact that I gave it a go. And over the summer, one of my other colleagues became certified as an EFT practitioner. And I was like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. how did you do that? I'm like, I didn't realize you had like higher degrees and all that stuff. And so I spoke to her and I spoke to Sarah and I'm like, how did this happen? Like, how do you, like, how do you do this? And they're like, oh no, it's a, it's a separate certification process. You don't need a master's and things like that. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like, by that point I had done so much more work on myself 
that I really was ready to like to go back into what was my original path, which was helping people more intimately in a mental health situation. And so I ended up uh, working on the certification. It was all, you know, it was all through Zoom because it was, this was in the middle of COVID. I ended up doing all of my uh, practice hours under supervision all through Zoom. And then I ended up becoming certified towards the end of last year of 2020. And now I'm just trying to share this gift with other people because the person that I am today is a person I never thought I could be. I, you know, in the past, I was so disconnected from my emotions where an experience, something would happen and I would feel it like three days later and then not know why I was feeling angry or irritated <clears throat> or depressed. And it was, I was very disconnected from my emotions and doing something like this, talking to you, knowing that this is being recorded, knowing that people are going to listen to this. There was, you know, a year ago, this kind of public speaking would scare the ever living crap out of me. It would make me sick for days prior to doing it. I'd be in the bathroom for hours. I would, <laughs> yeah. My body expresses anxiety through nausea. That's just kind of how my body goes. And so, and that's from all of the self-work with the EFT, I can have this conversation with you and honestly enjoy it. Like all I have left now is the normal little bit of adrenaline you get from doing public speaking, which I'm starting to actually start to enjoy, which is kind of funny. But the person that I am today, I'm immensely happier. I'm immensely more confident. I'm more ambitious. I have more drive than I ever thought I could have. And the really crazy thing is that I'm not done. Like, I feel like I, I crossed out of the cloud line, climbing this mountain of mental health. And now I'm above the clouds and I can see how far I've come. And I can see so much further around me and I can still see how much further I can go. And I'm like, what, this is crazy. I'm like, I can't believe I can keep improving. And so it really, having this experience myself really ignited in me the desire to give this gift to other people, for people who are ready to take the same kind of journey to, to, to do it through EFT. Because I had seen other conventional therapists in the past and EFT just goes that extra step when it comes to personal healing. That's great. And I can really identify with you, especially in one portion of your story, in that one night I was in bed uh, suffering and emotionally, and then I woke up at about three in the morning and my body, my head felt like it was in a furnace. Mm. It was boiling. And I'm like, I've never felt anything like that. And I went in and splashed some water on my face and then went back to bed and waited for a couple of minutes and nothing changed. And like you, I looked at the phone and said, well, maybe I, this is when you call 911. And I did. Yeah. And really within three minutes, these guys showed up and, did all these testings that you did. And unfortunately, <laughs> the answer that they gave me was, uh, do you have a heart condition? And I said, not that I know of. And they said, 
Well, you do now. Oh, and, God. And we need to go to the hospital right now. And I did. And they put a stent in my heart because I had 99% blockage in one of my arteries. Oh, my God. And uh, luckily, in a few hours when I woke up in intensive care, my uh, primary care physician was there. And he was chuckling. And I said, what, what's so funny? And he said, well, I'm real proud of you because you got here so quickly. There is, they put a stent in, but there's no heart damage whatsoever. And that was like, you know, you talk about God, that was a, a, a life-saving moment. And it, it was the accumulation of all of, of my undiagnosed severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring and that prompted and I, I get into this into my book where when mental health issues such as depression go unchecked that this is when risky behavior in humans show up like drinking uh, addiction pill addiction violence uh, fighting and can extend itself into shootings or, or suicide. And what connects us is, is the fact that it took an event like that to get us to peel the onion, do some more self-examination to find out what was really going on. And it actually improved our path of our life. We're more happier. Absolutely. I, I, I'm sure like you, I don't, I don't want others to go through what I went through. And I've found there's 300 million people that have depression in this world, but only half of them get help. And thus, you see all of the issues out on the streets, violence, domestic violence, rape, a lot of arguing, guns, sometimes death by suicide. And it's, you hear these reports, and then at the end of the report, they say, oh, by the way, there was a report in the personal, personal file of this individual that said he had some mental health issues. And I thought, well, my opportunity in life is to speak to these 150 million people who don't get help. And I, I did research to find out why. And, and that's what I've explained in my book. And I'll get into it in, in a minute. But look, you had a harrowing experience. But, you know, you were lucky you, you got to where you needed to be. Did you, did you ever fathom, how did you fathom trying to recover from that just god-awful spot you were in? Yeah, there was, there was a while really early on where I just, I didn't know if it would ever end. Like, there was a time where I was like, what am I going to do? Like, am I going to have to, like, go on to disability? Like, there was a time where, like, I my world had shattered so badly 
And I just, the thought of sinking further into it, some part of me just pushed against that. And, you know, the worst, in my eyes, the worst thing that could have happened kind of happened. Like I had this complete mental breakdown in front of other people and made a complete fool of myself. And doing the work on myself, you know, with a therapist, with EFT, you know, that, you know, digging up those old demons and putting them to rest once and for all, you know, was still a scary proposition, but the, wor- the worst had already happened. Like my, my world fell apart. And so I, it was like, I might as well, I might as well level the ground and then rebuild. Otherwise, if I, if, if I didn't do that, I would, hadn't, I would not have had a reason to just keep living. Cause it, I, you know, going with what you were just saying, you know, whether or not a person believes in heaven or hell, when you die, heaven and hell exist here on earth. You can <laughs> use, you can, especially people living in their own personal hell. You can see that when someone is really suffering and, you know, it's, I, you know, I was in my own hell and I, part of me knew the only way I can get out of it was to crawl out of it. You know, one, you know, take it one day at a time and just do the hard work, even when I didn't want to, even when it really sucked, even when I had to talk about things I never wanted to bring back into my mind but it was things that were haunting me that I needed, I needed to get rid of. I couldn't avoid it anymore. Well, that's an incredible story. I want to frame our discussion and then drill down into some specifics. While you were growing up, did you ever think that you would become such an influencer in this area that you're currently immersed in? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. I totally, no, I never, if I went back in time and told the 18 year old version of me or the 25 year old version of me or the 30 year old version of me that I would be being a guest on podcasts and talking to people about all this shit that happened in my life and like advocating this you know, unique form of mental health treatment. All all versions of those my, of those past versions of myself would have been like, "You're fucking nuts." And <laughs> so, and so, um, so no, I never, I no, this was not a plan for me. I, I always knew I wanted to help people. That was something I had in me na- innately for as long as I can remember. And how I was going to do that, I never really knew, and I just kind of kept stumbling around until. until I am to where I am now, so. Well, that begs the question of what drives you now to such a high level of excellence in this area that you're undertaking? Something something that I've learned relatively recently, I've been reading and listening to a lot of philosophy and things like that and kind of like just just more like those those fundamental things of just like what's the point like why are we here what's the point of living and one of the things that i've discovered that i learned from doing that 
is that when you are doing something that is fulfilling to you as an individual, you lose time. You do something and all of a sudden hours can go by and it felt like five minutes. And for, and every person, whatever that causes that time to get lost is unique to them. And with me, you know, doing this kind of work and helping other people and witnessing the profound change that they can have working with me and, and then also experiencing the profound change I've had with myself. I have that same kind of loss of time. And one of the philosophy podcasts I listened to was saying that when that happens, when you lose time, it means that you are, you are following your purpose in your life, whatever it is. And they were saying to do, every, to do everything you can for as much of your life to be doing that. And so it just, every client that I've helped, every person I talk to about this and, you know, help them through something dramatic or help them through something minor, whatever it is for them. And just seeing, you know, how much better they feel after, after a couple of sessions and in them talking about how much change they're having in their own lives. It's, it's an honor to be in that space where they share that level of intimacy with me, but it's, it's also just, it continues to amaze me how much a person can heal from this technique. And it's, it just makes me, it just pushes me to keep doing it more, you know, helping one person at a time. I agree. I, I was a uh, top executive at, in Fox television uh, a very demanding, traveling, uh, negotiating multi-million dollar contracts, stressful, affected all my addictions. And what, you know, like yourself, there was uh, a moment that I had to turn things around and let go of that, even though I thought that was life, learn you know, make as much money, travel around, have the biggest toys. And now I'm doing, I feel like I'm closer to my true purpose in life. And I don't look at it as this job. It's, you know, I want to, I have a strong desire to communicate my message to others because there's so much pain out there and suffering. Yeah. It's terrible. I mean, this year it's just gotten increased dramatically. Yeah, for sure. So, so while you're doing this, what's your central message? Is Can you describe your style that you use? What are you trying to get across to people? So one of the big things that I say to people who are embarking on this journey of mental health is you need to connect with the practitioner and you need to connect with the technique. So with EFT, with tapping, you know, for me, I, I obviously very much connect with it as I pursued it, but for some people, because it does incorporate um, Chinese medicine, because it does incorporate tapping on acupressure points on the body 
as, as part of the technique. For some people, that might be a little bit too much woo-woo for them. And that's perfectly fine. I, it's to each their own. Some people prefer to be lying on the couch with the therapist sitting behind them and the therapist being like, you know, so what was the relationship with your mother? That kind of whole thing, like the very traditional Freudian psychoanalysis route. And that's fine too. That's, that's also a very effective form of mental health. Other people, it could be prayer. Other people, it could be exercise. Everyone's path for healing themselves is different. And so for me, it's just, I always just say to people, you know, because a lot of people don't know what EFT is. A lot of people have not even heard of it. I say to people, you know, just give it a try. It either is going to click with you or if it doesn't, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't click, that's perfectly fine. You'll, and then you'll find something that clicks for you. So I, I kind of have a very, you know, a very, you know, hands off to an extent approach to it. It's kind of like, you know, give it a try. Here's a sample. Give it a try. If you like it, great. We can keep working together. If you don't like me, but you like the technique, that's fine too. I know people who do it. I'm not, no disrespect. I get it. Everyone connects with different people in different ways. And so I just kind of go with that kind of just, you know, it's what the client needs. Like it's not less, it's less important for me. It's more important for them. And I'm happy to point them in whatever direction it is, even if it's not working with me. Great. Great. When you look back, is there one moment uh, where you felt the most gratification for the experiences you're involved in now? And, and why would you say that? This is going to sound crazy for anyone who suffers from panic attacks, but I, I am actually incredibly grateful for the panic attack because I knew something was wrong for a really long time. I knew I had things I needed to deal with from my past that I had been ignoring for a really long time. And I just was always just, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I have other things that are more important. Like this is, this isn't a big deal anymore. I can just keep going. And you know, even, the, even though the panic attack was basically my psyche's way of coming up behind me with a bat and knocking me out and dragging me towards forcing myself to healing myself, I'm grateful for it because I needed something that dramatic to happen for me to take healing myself seriously. I, and trust me, it sucked. And I would never want to have a panic attack again. And I, and I have so much empathy for those who suffer from panic attacks. They truly are horrific. Um, but, I, you know, in a really bizarre way, I am grateful for it because it, it gave me no choice but to, but to take what was happening and what I was ignoring seriously. Cool. Well, well let me ask you, when in either of your careers that you've embarked, did you ever get down on yourself and feel that the effort at this level was just too challenging and, and you felt overwhelmed? <sighs> yeah, a lot of times and a lot of different career paths. Um, it was funny when I, I'm not sure if you, I guess you'd call it a pre-life crisis. I'm not sure what you'd call it anymore. When I turned 30, I had like a, an accidental crisis of kind of like, what the hell am I doing with myself? And so I had been in hospitality for a very long time and it, it, I was good at it and I enjoyed it, but it just, there wasn't a future. You like for people who work in hospitality, 
to climb up that ladder, you really have to sell your soul to that line of work because hotels don't close ever for any reason, short of con condemning the building. <laughs> and so um, I just couldn't imagine being on call in that regard. You know, if I, if I ended up working towards being like a general manager, being on call essentially 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365, I couldn't imagine living a life like that. And the pay being crap for lack of a better word. And so, you know, after that, so that, that, so there was like that disconnect there. And then like I, after I turned 30, I, I just, I kept trying to find my path and like every job I would do it for a bit of time. And then like, there would be either, I would have a disconnection with it or some, or it was, or it just wasn't a good fit. And there was a lot of that, you know, what's wrong with me? Like, you know, this is going to look really bad on my resume that I keep hopping around. And, you know, there were lots of times where like, trying to get myself out of bed just to go to work was hell where I would just, I would be in bed, the alarm would go off and be like, Oh, for the love of God, I, I can't do whatever I was doing at the time. Again, it's just like the same crap over and over and over and over again. And yeah, so for sure, I've experienced that all throughout. <clears throat> okay. So let me ask, how did you deal with that? Did you uh, ever ask for help? Why or why didn't you? On average, up until more recently, I dealt with it very poorly. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there were a few times where things were particularly bad where I did see other therapists. So Sarah was technically my fourth therapist. I saw one incredibly briefly in college, um, right when I came out right when I was coming out and the, the fallout of that very incredibly briefly, I saw, and then I saw two others in between, but it, it, it was, it was more for immediate symptom relief. It was more for like in those, in that specific moment, things were particularly bad. But then once I got to a point where it was bearable, I just kind of stopped for whatever reason, partially financially and partially like I just, I wasn't wanting to keep digging deeper into my own mind. Um, but honestly, for most of, honestly, I had a very hard time asking for help outside of those very few times where I did see a therapist. I, there was a long, long time where I loathed asking for help for anything. You know, I, I would, I'm that kind of person that needs, you know, that would like be carrying the 20 bags of groceries all at once because I didn't want to make more than one trip and then open the door myself instead of me just asking my husband be like hey can you help me with this like I like I had that stubbornness for a long time and it you know it took a, it it took the EFT and kind of diving into that stubbornness for that to start to dissolve thank god for my own benefit and for the benefit of my marriage as well because he my husband would be like he'd be like I'd be like it's okay to ask for help and i'm just like no it's like i can do it myself and he's just kind of like okay all right so <laughs> yeah a little bit of that stubbornness i needed to learn to let that go all right well many of us do that and we're, we're yeah. going to dig into that a little later but let's first look at your nuclear family while you were growing up what where did you grow up as a child so I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, similar to you, just you were Long Island. I was on the other side of the city. So I was in Rockland County. So the, uh -huh. so for um, 
west side of the Hudson. So west on the other side of the, what was the Tappan Zee Bridge? Now I think it's the Cuomo Bridge. I don't remember anymore <laughs> from Westchester. And um, yeah, and I grew up there. Um, a, a very tra a traditional, traditional family, you know, my father worked in construction as a contractor. He owned a concrete company. You know, my mother was a stay-at-home mother. Um, I'm first generation. My parents immigrated here from Portugal. And um, so in that regards, it was pretty, it was pretty conventional. I, you know, I have one younger brother. I have two older half-sisters from my dad's first marriage. Um, you know, they're technically my half sisters, but like they've been in my life my entire life. They took, you know, they took, they changed my diapers and things like that. So, and that. Right, well, let me ask you about your father. Uh, what was he like as a man? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show you love? Did he ever talk about his emotions and feelings? Spend time talking to you about what it was to be a man. So he was. He is <laughs> incredibly stoic and he, he is not, he is not an emotional man. And the way I know he loves me and I know that's there. It's just, it, it was just, it's just not touchy feely at all. His, for him, he, his expression of love was always action. It was always him making sure that we had food on the table, him making sure you know that we were that we had a, a roof over our head. You know, he 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 really really also valued ed, still does valued education. You know, he never had a formal education. You know, growing up in Portugal, you know, he's he's a he's a very intelligent businessman, but just didn't never had a, tr a real in-depth formal education. So that was something that he was really adamant that me and my siblings had. And his big thing was, you know, he, he, you know, we were lucky that he did well in construction. And so he always said to me and my siblings, you know, when it came to college and everything like that, you know, that he was happy to fund us going to college, but he was, he always would say, you know, I'm happy to for, to pay for the bill, but if you screw around, I'm cutting you off. And so we all took that very seriously. And, you know, we all got our, you know, got degrees in a variety of different things. And so he certainly, that, that was kind of how he showed his love. It was, it was, it was certainly more through action and, you know, it's, it's still, it's still funny even today, like, you know, when I hang up, like if I'm talking to him on the phone and then I, I go to hang up and I say, you know, I, and I say, I love you as I'm saying goodbye. Like he does say it back, but it's almost like an, oh yeah, I should say that kind of like response. Like it's just, it's just, it's just who he is as a person, which is fine. Um, so there were four parts to that. I think I got two out of the three. If you don't mind. Oh, you're good. You're good. We okay. get it. So based on that, did it ever occur that, um, you know, his stoic personality uh, and, and today's masculinity norms uh, where you've got this, you know, egotistical macho guy running around thinking that he's tough and hard and doesn't have to talk about his feelings and emotions and won't ask for help. You ever think that that those experiences may have prevented you from asking for help sooner for fear of being labeled as not a real man. So 
Kind of, sort of. So he was very stoic, but certainly, but certainly not the mochismo kind of component of it at all. Um, if anything, if anything, the biggest thing I learned from him in that regard was he really operated with a, with a high level of respect for the people in his life, even, even his children. Like, he really treated the people in his life, everyone in, in his life with respect and with courtesy and professionalism. And it's what made him a, such a great businessman that people, people like to work with him because they could trust him and they can trust his word. And that, that, that I've certainly absorbed. That's something I, I certainly take from him. And I honor that, that, um, that example. And the, the thing that I've had to learn over time is to add in emotion on top of that, that like, is that there isn't anything wrong with incorporating emotion as a man into who I am. Now, granted, as a gay man, I already kind of break the mold when it comes to the machismo kind of thing. So that all gets thrown out the window anyway. But, um, but no, it's still, for me in particular, you know, I didn't come out till I was 21, which by today's standards is a little bit on the later end of the spectrum. Kids nowadays are coming out much, much younger, which I'm grateful for. It, it's a change of the times in the positive direction. Um, but for, for sure, for me in particular, me holding back my emotions was tethered with me holding back a big part of who I was that I felt that I, that expressing myself was too unsafe to do. And a big part of that was my emotions as well. So that wasn't something I necessarily learned from him. It was more what I learned from my peers because I was horrifically bullied when I was in school. And it was, it was that example coming from my peers of, Whenever I express my individuality, I get attacked. That caused me to, to shut down. So that didn't come from my, my dad didn't give me an example of, of an emotional man to follow, but my dad didn't force it down either. It, it was, it was, that was certainly my peers at the time. Yeah. Well, I can relate. I, I was bullied at school for sure. And, uh, and at home, uh, you know, I had, I was abused physically and mentally and emotionally and verbally. And it wasn't until I got out of the house and looked, looked back and realized that that caused and was the root of my condition of severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. And then based on that, that's when my addictions kicked in because I didn't want to feel those feelings but I've since overcome that with the help of qualified doctors. Did, I'm just curious, it doesn't, other than bullying, was there any other kind of abuse going on in your life that you experienced? So family life, no, thank God. I, I got lucky in that regard. Um, but the, the bullying was particularly, you know, some of it was physical, you know, I remember, I remember a particular instance, you know, of, you know, in the in between classes in the eighth grade of being robbed and stuff like that and all the other kids not like it was like i'm a, I'm a small guy i'm five eight 
I was smaller back then as an eighth grader. And this guy, you know, this guy was like six one and he just like, he picks me up in a bear hug and there's one of his friends trying to rob me in a hallway filled with students in in an ice line of a teacher. I'm not going to ask for, I'm not going to ask for help. I'm not going <laughs> to scream out to the teacher because you know, you do that in school and you're going to get the shit kicked out of you anyway. And then like, no one was going to do, you know, everyone else was just kind of doing their own thing. So, you know, definitely, you know, some physical abuse in that regard with the bullying and just an immense amount of emotional bullying for sure for for a long long time so okay so as a result of that did you ever display any risky behaviors uh alcoholism drug addiction pills stealing fighting with others violence so with me i everything was I internalized everything and I, I definitely, there was, a, I definitely beat myself up a lot um, for, I was never formally diagnosed with um, eating disorder issues, but I certainly in hindsight had them. If, if the act of vomiting, I didn't find so vile, I totally would have been bulimic at one point. Um, I definitely ate my feelings immensely in high school. And then in college it flipped and I certainly was, I probably would have been diagnosed as anorexic in high school. Uh, I mean, in college, um, I, I had, I, I did, I, a lot of it was around food for me in particular. And then as I got older, when I was in the working world, you know, I had to, you know, I had to be, I, I noticed how much I started leaning into liquor. So I had to be very careful with that. You know, it, you know, it got, you know, two, you know, when it get, was getting to two to three to sometimes four glasses of wine a night, you know, I, I, I realized like, one, it was aggravating my digestive issues on top of everything else, but I, I was like, this is good. And then when Massachusetts legalized marijuana a couple of years ago, I kind of dived into that for a bit. And then that turned into a, just a different kind of crutch. And then, you know, I was doing that, you know, basic, that was back when I was in the subsidized housing, you know, I was doing that almost nightly as just a way to just get away from all the crap that I was feeling. It was, so all of it was just to find an escape. So with, with the food, it was to, with food, it was to me inflict some, inflict that gross full feeling instead of me feeling the depression I was experiencing. And then with the liquor or with, or with pot, it was, it was just to mask it and, and just to kind of cover it up. Um, so I don't, I don't want to, I don't call it, I don't say that I was addicted to liquor or to pot because I feel like it would be insulting to say that compared to what people have experienced who truly have that kind of addiction. Like I, I had an unhealthy relationship with those things, but I was still very functional. So like where you want to draw the line of if it crossed into addiction, I personally won't say that just because it's like, it could, it, you could really go very far down that road. But yeah, I definitely didn't have the best relationship with those kinds of substances. And so you kind of kept that to yourself. You, you didn't at that point seek help uh, to try and get rid of those behaviors. No, no, it's... No, I didn't, I didn't seek external help in, the, in that regard at all. 
I had enough self-awareness to know kind of what I was doing. I kind I knew that I was doing it because I was, I, it, as just a way to mask things. And I, it, it didn't get, it never got to the point where it was interfering enough where help would have been truly warranted. Like I, there were certainly times where I got like the raised eyebrow from my husband of being like, you're going on, you know, there were certainly times where I didn't, I wasn't a hundred percent honest with him about how many glasses of wine I had, or I wouldn't say that I was stoned at that time. Cause you know, sometimes he wouldn't realize I was stoned. He'd be like, wait, are you stoned? And I'd be like, hey, yeah. And so, <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So the fact that, you know, that's not good when you're hiding that from your spouse. And so, but no, I didn't, I didn't seek help for it directly. Yeah. And that's, that's what I point out in my book, you know, around masculinity. I know for me, um, I was in denial. I had a 41 year run with marijuana to the point where I was getting high, but I mean, I was smoking marijuana, but I wasn't getting high. Mm. And it was just, I was stuck in this spin cycle. And now looking back, I realized that, you know, healthy masculinity enables me to talk about my feelings and emotions with the proper person at the proper place at the proper time. And that's not, that doesn't make me any weaker or, you know, less of a man. In fact, it takes more courage to ask for help and share about what's really going on. And this is the major reason, I believe, that half these people, especially men that have depression, do not reach out and ask for help. There's, there's too much fear, um, too much that they may be pigeonholed as a certain type of person not a real man, that they have trust issues with other men who might tell their story to somebody else and would embarrass them in, in public. So I, I really pitched how masculinity uh, fits into this equation and how overcoming that can in, in improve everybody's relationships with yourself and others, whether it's with other men, other women, at home, or in the workplace. You know, it, it's, a, it's an issue in the workplace. And women get uh, forced out. They don't, aren't allowed to contribute what they have to contribute. And I would, I would say, as, as many gays are, are victim of that as well just because they're not part of the good old boy network and, you know, a woman or a gay man or a person of another race may go to a leader of in their business and want to make a contribution somehow in productivity. And the guy who's buddy buddy with the vice president is going to say, yeah, you know, that might be a good idea, but you're a woman. Mm. So we're, we're going to disregard that. And that, that's what I'm, I'm trying to point out to people that 
you know, that takes productivity down for the organization, as well as, you know, these victims may go to HR, they have a risk of getting fired or getting help, or they sit in the back and buy their time and not be as productive as they can, or they look for another job, which turnover is expensive for organizations. So it's just something that, that needs to be, you know, this is why I'm talking about it so that I know it's difficult for people to talk about this. They don't want to talk about the mental health issues and everything that goes along with it, but it needs to be aired out. It's like it's been swept under the rug for too long and it's causing too many problems in our world today. So let me ask you in, in your EFT business, do you work with mostly men or women or the LGBTQIA plus community about their feelings and emotions? Is there a certain percentage that you notice uh, that you work with? So, you know, going with what we've been talking about, you know, I have certainly noticed that it's more women than it is men because women are tend to be more willing to talk first. Um, and, you know, yes, I certainly, you know, gear part of my practice towards the, you know, the LGBT plus community, be just, just because I'm a member of the community and just to have that kind of comforting person to, to relate to. And, you know, the, you know, that is also a, a, a small part of my practice as well. But, you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't, I don't, I honestly don't keep that kind of demographic information offhand because for me, it's, you know, I'm looking just to help people who are ready to heal and, you know, men or women, gay or straight and everything in between. I, I don't really like, it makes no difference to me. Like if you're ready to heal and you want to heal, I'm happy to work with you. But yes, it, I will. The one thing I could say for sure is that it leans a lot more towards women than it does towards men. Not to say that it won't help them. It's just, they have to be willing sure. to, to try. Sure. And let me ask you, if you ever have children, how do you think you would characterize yourself uh, as a parent, would you be easy, tough, lose your cool, yell and scream, sit down and, and show emotions and love? How would you handle that? That is a really great question. I would love to, I would love to be, <laughs> I guess, a quote unquote great parent. I don't know. It'd be interesting to find out what that is exactly, but, um, Knowing myself, well, first off, I won't play the whole I want to be my kid's friend game. No, they can have all the friends they want. A parent is a different relationship to a child than, than a friend. So in that regard, there, there needs to be a, a certain level of sternness. Like there, like you, there needs to be a line that if, if your child crosses that there's a consequence for it because otherwise... Otherwise they will really, they can really hurt themselves or you or someone else. Like they, they, you know, children need boundaries. Otherwise they'll run amok. 
But at the same time, you know, yeah, it's true. But at the same time, I'm not going to be, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't be heartless about it. So, you know, I'm not a parent. Uh, my husband and I at the moment are still very firm in the not wanting kids category. I'm kind of scratching that parental itch in different ways though. Um, you know, I have two young, I have a young niece and nephew, you know, so I'm doing, you know, I have, I have, well, I have three nieces and one nephew, but two of them are little kids. My other two nieces are already adults. So I'm, you know, I'm certainly having fun with the uncle game, which has the benefit of giving them back. And, um, <laughs> but I'm also uh, mentoring a young gay man as well, because that was something I really wish I had when I was younger was just someone who is just has a little, had a little bit more life experience and was willing to share who, and had that kind of comfort there. So in, in that, in being an uncle and then being a mentor, I feel is scratching that parental itch for me without having to actually make the full on commitment of a child. Great. All right. Just two quick questions to wrap up. Um, tell us what have you learned from your experiences so far? What's been the biggest thing that stood out? The biggest thing that has stood out is that even if, even if you, as long as you're still breathing, that you can make a positive change in your life, that no matter how bad, this is going to sound so cliche, but no matter how bad things have gotten, you can pull yourself out of it. It's not to say that it will be easy but that it can be done. And that another really big thing too, as well, I, I mentioned it briefly before, is each of us needs to, needs to work on discovering our purpose in life and work towards that goal, whatever it is. Some people get lucky enough to turn their purpose into their career where they make money, but it's not necessary. You know, you can work the whatever job that you may not, maybe whatever, it pays the bills. But if it's paying the bills for you to do something that is more fundamental to you, that is what's going to make living life easier. Because life fundamentally sucks at times. Hmm. You know, accidents are going to happen. Illness is going to happen. You know, you're going to have heartache. You know, you're going to have to deal with death, you know, of those you love and then eventually of yourself. And when you're, when you're, pursuing your purpose it makes the, the the rough edges of what life is a little softer and makes it a little bit easier to get back up when life kicks you down because life's going to kick you down whether or not you're working on your purpose it's just regrettably how life works we can't bubble wrap ourselves with life life will find a way in so it's so that's a certainly a big component of you know putting in that time and that effort of that self-discovery of why, why are you here? What are you doing with your life? Like, what is it that, what, what brings you joy? What, what, what brings you vitality? Great. And one last question, personally, how would you define masculinity? I have been pondering that question for a while. It's a really hard question. Um, The best answer that I have is that masculinity is one half is one side of the coin of humanity. 
It's masculinity and it's femininity. Femininity. You need both. You can't ignore one or the other. Otherwise, other, if, you, if you ignore one or the other, it puts the person completely out of balance. Too much masculinity becomes too rigid. It becomes too, too immobile. It becomes too cold. Too much femininity becomes too flexible. It becomes too emotional. It becomes, it be, like, it becomes too passive. You know, you need, you know, you need the aggressive to be counterbalanced with the passive. You need compassion to be counterbalanced with, with, a, with, with fight. You, you need protection, but you also need to know when to pull back. And so right now, you know, right now there is so much of an attack on masculinity and vilifying it. And it's like, no, like, you can't, you can't vilify masculinity any more than you can vilify femininity. You need them both. Um, it's really, it's really interesting. A, my own, my own fun interpretation of the creation myth from the Bible of, you know, Eve being the rib of Adam, you know, some people interpret it as that Eve is subservient to Adam, but the way that I kind of see it is, when Adam was formed, he, he was formed as whole, as human. And when, when Adam needed a companion, Eve, part of Adam was removed and created Eve. So, not, so Adam and Eve combined are human, but separate, they're, they're two halves of the coin. It's the yin and the yang. You need both. So... That's, that's great. The best answer I could give. <laughs> no, that's, you're 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 very right on. I I, I applaud that. I like thanks. how you. Well, Eric, thanks for being with us. Your story is quite remarkable. You've demonstrated a lot of courage and bravery in giving to your community, uh, a true mo role model for our world today. And we're honored to have you on our podcast. Any final thoughts before we wrap? No, just thank you so much for having me on. It was truly an honor. Great. Well, I look forward to keeping in touch with you so I can learn more from you and I can help others. So thanks again. Thank you. Listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get, wherever you get your podcasts, including the Mental Health News Radio Network and HealthyLife.net. And keep your eyes out for my new book, you Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a book about relationships, depression, suicide, and how toxic masculinity affects relationships between men and women. I also do speaking engagements, public speaking engagements, and you can contact me through my website, timcrass.com. And don't forget, everybody, have some fun. That's a wrap.